0: Chapter four of Murder in the Sacristy by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter four. The papers, of course, did their usual hounding of police during the next week of apparent inaction. The little Greek Uniate church of St. Sergius remained, under the double seal of the church and the state, closed tighter than a Scotchman's safe deposit vault. I dropped around regularly with or without Carl, and though no arrest had been made, and no slightest clue found to the missing jewels, I knew that Father Tierney was feeling intensely the suspicion under which he must inevitably be. He talked things over with his bishop, who was sympathetic and understanding, but who wished that until the seven-day wonder of the murder and theft had blown over the little church, remained tightly sealed, and all talk of the work that the young priest meant to do in Chicago, and later on in Russia, be kept far in the background." Anyhow, when Carl and I agreed to join Schwartz and his bund, we let ourselves in for more than we had suspected. Schwartz's first reaction had been hearty, almost boisterous pleasure. When later that evening we had announced our change of mind and heart, our determination to throw in with him and his fellow Hitlerites, he had pounded our backs lustily, and insisted on plying us with more beer, assured us of his delight at our having seen the justice of the Nazi cause and the glory of pan-Germanism under the mighty Fuhrer and even gave us a preliminary, informal introduction to the Bund members. And then came a change of front. We were visited by a series of men, all trying desperately to look like stormtroopers that needed only one quick jump to be in full uniform, who pried into our personal lives, asked us searching questions about our Aryan ancestry, and left behind them small books, some in German, some in English, that were, we learned, our textbooks. There's no Jewish in either Carl or myself, but I found out that once when a big lug demanded to know how far back we could trace the purity of our blood, Carl and I had had a common impulse. I had wanted to say, I can trace it to yesterday afternoon when we drank beer with Schwartz, and Carl had had it on the tip of his tongue to say, Well, I had a maternal uncle whose name was Israel Cohen, but I think he was an Irishman. We took Sergeant Riley into our confidence, and though he decided that officially he'd better do nothing about it, He shook hands with us approvingly, and said, with a glint in his Celtic eyes, I wonder whether I couldn't get in, too. Riley is a fine old German name. Well, we studied our textbooks together, and writhed at the false history and man attacks at democracy. We listened to uniformed stormtroopers instruct us in the ritual of initiation. We were glad to find that in any case we'd not be required to take an oath, until at least two or three months later. My conscience was bothering me, Carl confessed. How could I take an oath to follow these scoundrels when all the time I mean? Skip it, I cried. Don't get me jittery, too. As candidates we take no oath. I wish I could talk it over with Father Tierney, he said, but I waved my arms wildly at the idea. The poor priest had troubles enough of his own without our piling our consciences on top of his. The night before the bun meeting, Riley, Carl, "'Father Tierney and I met in the priest's parlor to bring all developments up to date. "'The barrier smoke-shop had been watched, but the Jap that left the antique-cut diamond "'had not reappeared. "'Maybe it wasn't part of the missing jewels, anyhow,' we agreed. "'The Countess Olga had buried her slain brother. "'There was a simple ceremony over which Father Tierney had presided, "'in a small convent chapel out of the normal range of reporters. "'She had settled herself down in the Morris Hotel, where she could be reached,' Riley assured us, at any time, though she may know a lot more than she told us, I don't believe she would have killed her own brother to get the jewels, Riley pointed out. We admitted that that did sound more twisted than a permanent wave, and we parted, feeling that we were fighting our way through cobwebs that could hardly be seen, yet kept lining us with their persistent clinging, webs fragile and intangible, and yet holding us like ropes woven to more an Atlantic liner. If the papers were giving the red jewels of white Russia a wonderful ride, they were not ignoring the sharp upward rise of the Bund in the city. And when Schwartz announced on the appointed day that in a big west-side auditorium, scene of price fights and charity balls and national presidential nominations, he was rallying around him the noblest exiled sons and daughters of New Germany. The papers got right on the job and played up the meeting in screaming headlines. And Schwartz, who loved a camera with the love of a Hollywood hopeful, Gave them plenty of shots of himself, looking like a blend of Mussolini and Hitler, and fed them a tall line about saving America from the stinking Reds, who he said were hiding under the patronage of the government. The last detachment of stormtroopers that arrived brought us our uniforms, and we tried them on with all the enthusiasm of victims being fitted with handcuffs or straitjackets or a complete coat of mustard plasters and When we looked at each other, brown-shirted visor capped with a swastika pinned on our arms, and a sand-brown belt adorning our noble chests. We first gritted our teeth in a rage, and then saved the situation by sitting down and roaring with laughter. "'If,' said Carl at last, in a strangled half-whisper, "'we go through all this monkey business, and then find out nothing.' "'Don't worry,' I reassured him. "'We'll pin this on Schwartz and his gang, or my name isn't Anton.' The newspapers played up that particular Bund meeting with such a spread that there's no need for my telling the story in detail. It took all our courage to get into those full uniforms, slip disguising raincoats over us, and plow our way through the crowd that milled outside the big palladium. We fought through a twisting queue of Jewish pickets, all carrying placards denouncing the arrival of Hitlerism in the States. We saw throughout the crowd legionnaires, their jaunty service caps tilted at pugnacious angles, and their fists just aching to start a haymaker right up from the pavement. Sound trucks were getting the noises, and the shouts on discs were the news reels, and the news photographers were shooting bulbs in such rapid succession that if the bulbs had made a noise, you'd have thought the place was being bombed. We had been given careful instructions. We gained the side entrance, were marshalled into the dressing-room, relieved of our coats, searched most painstakingly by guards in full bun uniforms, and with our fellow candidates formed into a line of march. I know I looked around me, wondering how these other chaps had got themselves into the mess. For the most part they were normal young fellows, like those used to hanging around a pool room or leaning against the corner drug store, though among them were several whose accents were so thick a rabbit could have run along them without sinking in. Carl and I found ourselves between a young mechanic— that, according to his story, had been out of work for two years, and a filing clerk that was bored with his job and hated the Jew that bossed him. We got their stories while we waited for orders. The mechanic believed that Hitler had given every young man in Germany a job. "'And that's more than Roosevelt's done,' he said. The young filing clerk hated the dull, pointless work at which he spent his day, and—' I'd like to get that Jew who's earning five times as much as I am just because he's got no scruples and will put through any kind of dirty deal. Our drill sergeant snapped his orders, and we stood at attention. Up in front of us appeared an American flag, flanked by two other flags, marked with giant swastikas. A drum corps began to ruffle. Bugles blared forth. The doors of our dressing room swung open, and out we marched into the hall. It hurt so, the whole shameful performance that I could have cried. Carl's jaws were working savagely, but I'll bet the others thought it was just the grim determination of a born Nazi bent on bringing these United States to toe the line. The papers played it all up. The hall, the meeting, those American flags crossed with swastikas, the big pictures of Washington, Lincoln, Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels at the end of the hall, the play of the searchlights that swept around the audience like intangible finders, the mass battalion of stormtroopers, a solid brown, stern, unsmiling block in the center of the hall. So it's all old stuff to most of you. But it wasn't old stuff to us who marched stiffly down that aisle toward the seats that were kept for us in the front of the auditorium. Maybe you don't think that we had our emotions all milling around inside of us like things that were being flipped in a giant cocktail mixer. Maybe you'll be surprised to know that for a moment the mass of people, the rhythm of the drums, and the impelling screech of the bugles— The sound of our own marching feet and the massing of flags all around us really got into my blood. I was part of something big, terrible, forbidding, yet prophetic of power. I had to shake myself into remembering the truth. This was not a proud march under glorious standards, an assembling of men dedicated to noble purposes. This was a demonstration that was meant to shake the liberties of my country and plunge me under the power of tyranny. We filed into our places, while around us roared the applause and the undercurrent of boos and groans that blended with the shouts and the hand-clappings. At a signal the light sharply dimmed, a single floodlight flung a silvery-white circle into the center, and into it snapped Franz Schwartz and the two men that regarded themselves as his Goebbels and Goring. We all snapped to attention, and at a ringing blast of a trumpet, shot our hands forward in the Heil Hitler salute, out and back, and out and back, and out again. TO HOLD THEM THERE WHILE THOSE WHO KNEW THE SONG PICKED UP AND SHOUTED THE HORSE Wessel, ANOTHER BLAST OF THE TRUMPET AND WE SAT DOWN. THEN Schwartz TALKED. AND AS HE TALKED, I KNEW THAT THE MAN HAD POWER, THE GRIPPING POWER OF ELOQUENCE THAT RISES SUPERIOR TO ANY QUESTION OF WHAT IS SAID AND BECOMES A MATTER MERELY OF THE WHITE HEAT THAT BURNS IN THE HEART AND THE THROAT OF THE SPEAKER infuses HIS WORDS INTO STEEL ARMOR AND RINGING SWORDS AND TANKS AND ARTILLERY MASSED TO TAKE OVER THE WORLD. We listened, Carl and I, but you read the speech in the papers. The laudation of Germany, the cursing of England, a fiery attack upon communists, a masterly indictment of all enemies of democracy, except those that had rallied under the twisted cross. Only when Schwartz came to his conclusion did Carl and I grow tense in anticipation. "'Whatever comes from Russia,' he thundered, "'is cursed, make no mistake. There is a blight upon that awful monster,' Who once was the bear that walked like a man, and who is now a giant that has the soul of a gorilla, the morals of a jungle tiger, and the crawling secrecy of a snake in the hot grasses of India? Whatever comes to us from Russia brings death and destruction with it. Even, yes, even jewels that are placed under the care of the church. Not even the touch of the church can take away the curse of anything Russian. You know what I mean. An innocent priest that we love and respect lies under suspicion of crime. What is his real crime? That, like us, he meant to fight the communistic giant, yes, to track that monster even into the heart of Red Russia, and slay it with the gentle blows of the crucifix. They hate him, as they hate us, my friends, my brothers of another cross. I shall return to that priest, another victim of the Russian curse in a moment. We stand for true government, not the lumbering clumsy stumbles of false democracy, not the absurd pretense that an Aryan warrior is no better than a Jewish pawnbroker but true government of discipline and obedience, courageous, glorious leadership, and the massing of men of pure blood, men that love high culture and dream of a world in which the superior race shall set the standards for lesser breeds. For this we need money, my friends, his voice dropped, as if what he meant to say was so confidential that he intended it only for a few years. Never fear, we shall find that money, I might almost say to you, we have found the money, I felt Carl's knee hit mine in sharp hint. So Schwartz was openly bragging that he had found money. Where? This was a crowd of relatively poor men, laborers, artisans, clerks without resources. Schwartz's bragging could mean only one thing, and involuntarily my hand closed over Carl's knee. Schwartz had the missing jewels. Wasn't it clear? We needed to have joined this full organization to learn the truth. Schwartz had just admitted it openly from the platform. All this was telegraphed between us and the impact of Karl's knee against mine, and my answering hand replying wordlessly that I understood, and that the trail was hot. But Schwartz was going ahead with his speech. "'But this poor priest,' he cried, "'this man who has been unjustly touched with the blight of all things Russian, "'we must stand by him. His enemies are our enemies, and we are his friends. "'If the stupid democratic laws of this country lay their hand upon him, "'we shall be ready to rise to his defense.' ready with men and money. Comrades, he called, and a half hundred uniformed munsters, holding boxes in their hands leaped forward. Go among our friends and collect the money that we will need to hire the finest defense lawyers in the country if Father Tierney should fall into the hands of the stupid police of this city. I caught Carl just in time. He was almost on his feet, white, furious, trembling with wrath, but I pulled him down. Quiet, you fool, I hissed above the clamor. But don't you see what this does to Father Tierney? He almost wept. Of course I did. It branded him as the friend of the Bunsters. It marked him as one receiving full support from them. The thoughtless public would class him with the Jew baiters, the Nazis, the anti-democrats. And if things went bad, his case would be hurt, not by evidence, but by the poison kiss of these false friends. All around was wild confusion. The collectors were pouring through the hall, and the audience was wildly applauding and angrily booing, as men leaned forward to contribute or to fight off the hands that reached out to pull the pasteboard containers from the grip of the stormtroopers. And from the stage Schwartz surveyed the chaos with that undisguised contempt he reserved for all assemblies of people, even those that came in answer to his call. "'Let's go!' I cried, and grabbed Carl by the wrist. The two on either side of us looked up in surprise. As for the others—' They saw in us merely two more stormtroopers headed for some unknown mission and stood aside to let us pass, or at us, or applauded us as we shouldered through the mob. How we found him, I don't know, except that we had a way of turning up at unexpected minutes. But as we flung out of the dressing room, where we had gone to get our raincoats, we ran flush into Sergeant Riley. Carl almost cried out in relief. "'Nice meeting,' said Riley sardonically. "'Did you hear the speech?' Carl demanded, and I stood on mental tiptoe waiting for his answer. I did, said the detective. Practically, I prodded, an omission that he has the jewels. I was surprised that Riley lifted the doubting eyebrows. No git,' he answered. They're poor, haven't the a red cent. Not really. Now, Schwartz from the platform brags that they have money enough for their cause. Riley turned quickly, and we fell in at his heels. From somewhere, two other men joined us, and we cut out into the street, through the increasingly riotous crowd, to a back entrance, where a quick display of badges gained us submission. It was the performer's entrance to the palladium, and Riley bolted up the narrow staircase with the rest of us in hot pursuit. In front of a dressing room marked with a large star stood two stormtroopers at attention. When we came in sight, they laid their hands on leather clubs that were at their side. Riley flashed a badge. The taller trooper barked. This is the dressing room of the leader. No one comes in here. Says you, answered Riley, and one of the trailing detectives pressed something hard against the taller trooper's back. As he did so, the other trooper made a quick move and headed for the narrow stairs. Grab him, yelled Riley. I never had more of real pleasure than I had when I threw my whole weight on this man and the other detective caught him from behind and swung him around toward the door. Push them into the dressing room and get in, too. If Shorts hears we're here, he won't come up. We were all crowded into the small room, the two troopers standing with their faces to the wall. You men, and he signaled his detectives, get into the uniforms and stand at the door. Quick, because if he arrives and finds the men gone, he'll run for it. Why should he? We all wheeled. The voice was so calm, so low so without tremor or emotion. In the doorway, as unperturbed as if he were walking into his own breakfast nook, was Franz Schwartz. He walked into the dressing room, closed the door behind him, and stood tamping a cigarette against his thumb. Heavens, how that man loved dramatics, and what an actor he was. I admired him even as I wanted to reach for his chin. Riley's orders soon emptied the dressing room of everyone except Schwartz and Carl and myself. Cigarettes, asked Schwartz. Holding out his pack toward us in a gesture of studied insolence and in affront, Riley waved it away for all of us, and then stood in front of the bun leader, glaring and really angry. So, from the stage tonight, you practically admit it—you have the Russian jewels. He barked. On the contrary, I said that anyone who came in contact with them was doomed. Schwartz was all ironic courtesy. You know how to remove that curse by turning them to bun purposes," retorted the detective schwartz lit his cigarette slowly seeming to hold the match deliberately before his face as if inviting us to see how utterly undisturbed he was how quite without fear and i must admit that he did the part convincingly gentlemen he cried at last we of the bond have other sources of money besides clumsy stolen jewels there are those abroad who think our work important enough to shall we say simply encourage it and if i had stolen the jewels or knew where they were I may be a stupid fool, as you gentlemen complimentarily think me, but not quite fool enough to make statements that would set you on the trail of the jewels. We knew he was entirely right. Carl had the look of someone, caught in an intolerably stupid situation. Riley flicked that left eyebrow thoughtfully, and by so doing dismissed this lead. Schwartz sank into a chair languidly and said, with some reason, This has been a trying evening, gentlemen, and I am a little tired, if you have nothing further. Come, said Riley, and we started toward the door, but Schwartz was by no means through. As for you, he said, picking out Carl and myself, I confess you fooled me. I thought you were men worthy of the shirt you now wear. I do not like spies and traitors. I do not like men who are prepared to take oaths falsely. We members of the Bund do not forgive trickery. "'He turned away from us. "'I suppose that if any accident should befall you, "'your friend Sergeant Riley would come straight to me.' "'Riley echoed him with emphasis. "'Straight to you, Schwartz.' "'With the same success, no doubt, that you had tonight. "'Don't let me keep you further, gentlemen. "'I am sure you still have a great many things unfinished. "'You seem to specialize in unfinished business.' "'We sat together over coffee and sandwiches.' though none of us, I confessed, showed much signs of appetite. "'I still believe it's Schwartz and his crowd,' I began. Carl looked at me almost in disgust. "'What a mess we got ourselves into, and Schwartz walked out without our laying a finger on him. "'Yet,' I protested, "'if he has the jewels, as I believe he has, "'wouldn't he take precisely the stand he did take?' "'Precisely,' Riley agreed, and then rose. "'I'll be back in a minute.' Just a phone call to headquarters. We were a bedraggled and discouraged pair sitting there at the table, our raincoats turned up to hide the disgraceful uniform we wore, our pride in our pockets, and pretty battered, and Father Tierney more involved than ever in the awful mess. I don't think we exchanged a word. I know I let my coffee grow cold. And Riley came back to the table and sat down heavily as if he were carrying an unseen load. A new problem awaited secret. We both looked up in interest. Anything could happen now and leave us unsurprised. He soon relieved us. We've located another of the missing jewels. No, we cried in perfect duet. The Jap appeared at the Barrier Smoke Shop late this evening and left another one. Not another unset stone, I protested, for even the antique cut of that last stone left the matter doubtful as evidence. A ring this time, said the detective a small gold band with ancient carvings on the mounting, and in the center a beautiful, flawless ruby. No doubt about it, it's one of the stones. Headquarters rushed it to the Countess, who identified it at once, and the Jap is waiting for us in jail. We got out of the taxi, bolted up the stairs, and followed the turnkey to the cells. In one of them a figure wrapped in a too-large overcoat was sleeping peacefully. It was, no doubt of it, the Jap from the Barrier Smoke Shop, He woke up and smiled blandly, as if he had been waiting for us, and was very glad to see us. "'Where?' demanded Riley, fixing him with a tough eye and an extended finger. "'Where did you get that ruby ring you offered to the bookmakers tonight?' "'From a lady,' answered the Jap, in perfect English, without slightest trace of accent. "'A lady,' retorted Riley, and the irony just dripped in acid globules from his tongue. "'Just like your looks, I suppose,' and said, Here, darling, is a little keepsake. The Jap shook his head without altering a fraction of his smile. No, he said, the lady for whom I am butler asked me to take it. Oh, said Riley, still running strong on sarcasm, so you're not a burglar, you're a butler, and I suppose you wouldn't want to tell us the name of the lady. Why not? asked the Jap. I'm sure that smart officers like you, and he included us all in the gesture, would find out anyhow. I got the ring from a very fine lady. I'm sure you all know her, Mrs. Hilary Goodspeed. That set us all back on our heels. I know Carl gasped out loud. Why, cried Riley in disgust, what kind of yarn is this? She's the wife of a United States senator. Precisely, said the Jap. Is there anything else you'd like to know? There was plenty, but when a prisoner is that ready and willing to hand it out, It sounds too phony to be good news. You don't go around pinning jewel thefts and murders on the wives of United States Senators. Or do you? End of chapter 4 Recording by Maria Therese